Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, April 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, with the first hundred days that has brought a flood and a pandemic, we have a conversation with Governor Tate Reeves. Then small businesses, especially those in African-American communities, are taking a hard economic hit during the coronavirus pandemic. Plus, in today's book club, we revisit a thriller by one of Mississippi's most notable writers, Greg Isles. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The coronavirus pandemic is pushing government officials at both the national and state levels in unprecedented ways. Governor Tate Reeves assumed office in January of this year, inheriting a prison crisis that at the time of his inauguration had produced a string of violent deaths and a lockdown. In February came the state's worst flood in nearly three decades. And now March and April are presenting the challenge of slowly slowing the spread of COVID-19 a disease that has already claimed the lives of 67 Mississippians in less than a month. Governor Reeves joined us to discuss his first 90 days and the state's response to COVID-19. I think any one of those crises that we uh, inherited or or this particular one uh, would have been uh, enough in an eight-year period for, for most governors, but we've had to deal with each of those over the first uh, 90 days. And so uh, my team has worked diligently to get through each and every one of them, and we're convinced that uh, if we continue to uh, have Mississippians do the right thing, uh, we're going to get through this one as well. You've been having a press briefing every day. What happens before that press briefing? How many meetings are you having? How many people are you talking to for information? Well, we're <laughs> we are talking to lots and lots of people, hospital administrators around the state, health care providers. Uh, we've appointed uh, um, and worked with folks like Dr. Clay Hayes and Dr. Claude Brunson to make sure that as we move into uh, the peak number of cases and the, the situation in which we have the most stress on our system, uh, that we have adequate resources in every hospital that we need adequate resources in. Because if you think about it, as a state, you can have enough hospital beds. As a state, you can have enough ventilators. But if you have 500 of those available in Tishomingo County, but you need them in Hancock County, well, they don't do you any good. You can, you can argue from the state's perspective we had enough, but if they're not in the right place, then they're not doing any good. So the logistical uh, discussions are exceptionally 
challenging, and that's one of the things that we're working very hard on right now is making sure that we have enough resources, uh, but also that we have those resources in the right place. Today, the number of cases now exceeds 2,000. Is that on par with what your projections show? Well, what I would tell you is we only had 88 new cases yesterday. That was a little bit of a surprise. We had been uh, bouncing between 100 and, and 180 for the last three or four days, so we had a pretty uh, significant decline. We are doing a significant amount of testing in Mississippi. That's uh, that's a very good thing. We're, we're way uh, out in front of the average state and, in fact, significantly exceed the national average, even though the federal government has pumped tremendous resources in places like New York, New Jersey, and New Orleans for testing, Mississippi is still testing far more of our residents than than many, many other states. And I think that has helped uh, tremendously because once once you're able to test someone, if you get a positive, then you're able to isolate or quarantine even those who are not as symptomatic as others. And then you're able to determine through case management um, who they have come in contact with, and then you can isolate those they have come in contact with. And that is the way in which you slow the spread of the virus, is by identifying those who have it and those they have come in contact with and making sure that those individuals are not out in the community continuing to spread it. How much do you think our neighbors' actions or circumstances affect us? In Louisiana, we have an explosion of cases. In Alabama, um, that shelter-in-place order didn't come down until over the weekend. In Georgia, Governor Kemp has reopened the beaches there. Does that affect us? Well, I I do think that uh, others' decisions have some marginal impact on what happens in Mississippi. Um, I've repeatedly said that what I saw happening in New Orleans uh, was the single most important data point outside of Mississippi data uh, that led me to make the decisions that I made to uh, the the fact that New Orleans is definitely a hot spot, not only in Louisiana, but a hot spot in America. Um, tremendous federal resources have been poured into the state of Louisiana because of uh, what's happening there. And I will tell you that they had a, a downtick in overall number of cases yesterday, which was encouraging, and I hope to s- that that happens again today. We will find out. But, um, but there's no doubt that um, what is happening in other states has to be part of uh, the equation when when making decisions. I want to talk about the health now. We've learned in recent days across the country and, of course, in Mississippi that there is a disproportionate amount of African-Americans who are dying from coronavirus. In Mississippi, it's about 50 percent of those who have died. Um, Many, some African-Americans live in poverty, and that exacerbates other physical problems, medical problems they might have, which would lead to them having a propensity for poorer health, poorer outcomes in this. How does the state, how should the state provide health care that's going to help people live longer and avoid death in this situation? Well, there's no question that um, underlying health conditions, uh, particularly in those that are 65 and older, but also those who are have uh, symptoms such as obesity, um, hypertension, and, and other underlying health conditions puts everyone at much greater risk of contracting the virus and ultimately having complications from the virus. That's the reason that we have we have repeatedly urged those that fit into that category to stay home, to shelter in place, to not put themselves in contact 
and for those who may even be healthy but have a loved one that fits into that category, that they are paying attention and, and not spreading the virus to them either. Um, it is a it is a fact across the country um, that those uh, who who have those underlying conditions are at a greater risk, and and unfortunately in Mississippi and in many other states, uh, that does tend to be a, a disproportionate share uh, of our African American citizens. And so we're doing everything we can to communicate with them, to uh, to make sure they are aware of the underlying risk, uh, so as to protect as many Mississippians as possible. Will you ever be for Medicaid expansion? I am not for Obamacare expansion or Medicaid expansion. No, it's um, I, I cannot foresee a scenario in which that would change. On April 3rd, you signed a state proclamation naming April as Confederate Heritage Month. There was no public announcement, but it did come to light because the Mississippi Division of Sons of Confederate Veterans posted it on their Facebook page. Was was the public announcement or not having a public announcement on purpose because of the pandemic? Or were you catering to this group? What was your reasoning there? Well, we have a state law which defines the last Monday in April as a state holiday. Every governor, for as many years as I can determine, um, has uh, named April uh, uh, this Confederate Heritage Month, and we did exactly what every other governor has done uh, historically. But was it because of the pandemic that you didn't make a public announcement about it? Uh, I will tell you, I, I think that as we are signing executive orders and, and, and everything else, we are focused on helping our people recover um, from this pandemic and making sure that we protect the hospital system. Um, and there are a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes right now uh, that we're not making public announcements about. As we talk, you have the ears of many Mississippians. What would you like to tell them during this tough time for the state? What I would tell Mississippians is to stay home, stay safe. Uh, if you will do what we have asked you to do for the next couple of weeks, maybe a, few, a little bit longer, uh, we're going to come out of this on the other side, and we're going to be even stronger than ever before. Governor Tate Reeves, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You can hear the full conversation with Governor Reeves on a special edition of the Mississippi Edition podcast, available this afternoon on your preferred podcast platform or at mississippiedition.mpbonline.org. The governor also addressed the upcoming Easter holiday with the media at a press conference yesterday. He says that while he does not have the authority to close churches, he asks that congregations across the state adhere to social distancing measures this holiday weekend. We also know that this is still America, and the government does not have the right to shut down places of worship. When you start taking people's rights away, very rarely does the government ever give it back to them. Mississippi is not China, and it never will be. America's system of government relies on our citizens to step up and do the right thing. Mississippians are doing just that. The governor also says he will make a determination regarding schools next week.
The Mississippi State Department of Health is now releasing data that indicates African-Americans are disproportionately affected by the new coronavirus. African-American residents who account for 38 percent of the population represent 56 percent of confirmed cases and 72 percent of all deaths. The newly released data also reveals that underlying conditions play an unbalanced role in COVID-19 related deaths in African-Americans when compared to white residents. State epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers says it's too early to draw conclusions from the data. I think it's it's very premature to draw a lot of conclusions based on the data that we're seeing now. Um, we're just going to need to continue to watch the trends. I think we just need to protect everybody, though, and, and we just need to make sure that we're all practicing those um, th- those sorts of things that we need to do to prevent infection. I will say this, um, it is my understanding, and I commend Dr. Byers and the entire State Department of Health. I believe that uh, we are one of the uh, first 10 states in America to actually uh, issue demographic uh, data uh, from this particular virus. They have been very proactive in that, and I commend them for it. Um, but if you look at the uh, disparities uh, amongst demographics uh, in the other states that are providing it, they are seeing very, very, very similar uh, data. To stay current on the latest developments concerning the coronavirus in Mississippi, visit mpbonline.org slash coronavirus. Coming up, small businesses, especially those in African-American communities, are taking a hard economic hit during the coronavirus pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Segments of the economy in Mississippi have nearly come to a halt after government officials issued a statewide stay-at-home order to minimize the spread of the coronavirus. While meant to protect the health of Mississippians, these orders have crippled many small businesses, especially those in African-American communities. MPB's Ashley Norwood reports. Of the almost 2,700 Mississippi businesses registered by the Small Business Administration, about 470 are Black-owned as of fall 2019. Although Black businesses make up less than 18% of the state's economy, they're starting to feel 100% of the losses dealt to small businesses by the coronavirus pandemic. Jernice Young is a stylist and owner of Glamour U Hair Designs in Ridgeland. She says every year around this time, she would make some of her biggest bucks. This week is Easter. This is one of the biggest weekends for stylists to just take as many clients and see an increase in their income. I would just roughly say around about... 3500 But not this year. Her hair salon is closed indefinitely. Republican Governor Tate Reeves recently issued a statewide shelter-in-place order closing all non-essential businesses until at least April 20th to slow down the spread of the coronavirus. More than 30,000 Mississippians have filed for unemployment this month, marking an unprecedented spike in claims. But what does that look like for black entrepreneurs? 
Brad Franklin is a community organizer and founder of Our Glass Media Group. He says the idea of America's recession being an economic depression for black people is nothing new. We expect uh, the trials and tribulations with us. We expect the obstacles. We expect to go into the bank and be told no. We expect to go in front of lenders and be told no. We're expected to go in front of investors and to be told no. That's just kind of the nature of what we've had to deal with. So we're dealing with something like this recession right now. We've kind of been preparing for it all along because a lot of us have been learning how to make the best off of a shoestring budget for a very long time. To alleviate the economic impact of the coronavirus on both individuals and businesses, Congress passed the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or CARES Act. Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson represents Mississippi's 2nd Congressional District. If you are an American citizen, there are parts of this program that you can benefit from. Taking... Uh, the barber, the beautician, the waitress, uh, the janitor, uh, the person who is a personal trainer uh, in a gym. We've taken the lawn care specialist. Uh, all those individuals are included. John Stanford is co-director of the Small Business Roundtable. During a webinar sponsored by Essence this week, Stanford says one of the biggest lifelines the CARES Act offers is the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. It consists of $350 billion in government-backed loans to help companies maintain their payrolls through June 2020. The PPP loan program is probably the best fit for most businesses. It will allow you to make eight weeks of payroll, rent, mortgage interest, and utilities, and be forgiven the amount you borrowed from the government if you use it for those expenses. Roderick Red is CEO of Red Squared, a communication design company in Jackson. Like a lot of small businesses, he says he's used to running on his own gas. That means he's been depending on the money he makes to run his business, pay employees, and keep the lights on. He says during this pandemic, inquiries about video productions have completely stopped. But as the demand for online content and live streaming increases, he says he's getting calls for his services. I think a lot of organizations, companies, and educational institutions are now starting to recognize that, hey, this switch is going to be here. That we need to have a plan. We need to get our word out about what we're doing. And they're thinking about, okay, the video is the best bet. You know, live streaming, calls are coming in more frequently from past clients to customers and newer customers are reaching out now. Red says he applied for the payroll protection program just in case. Brad Franklin with Hourglass Media Group manages musician and rap artist Dear Silas. He says they were just about to kick off a 15-citywide tour. He says his group invested thousands of dollars into booking venues, travel, and tour promotions, money that won't be refunded. We're calling venues now and, you know, trying to postpone dates and move dates. And we don't know what dates are going to be good. You move some dates to June, and then you find out that maybe this shelter at home is going to last longer than May, and it's going to last into June. In this time of great uncertainty, Franklin says what motivates him is the fact that this won't last forever. Black business owners in Mississippi say they can only hope for the best and try to survive the economic impact of the coronavirus. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up in today's book club, we revisit a thriller by one of Mississippi's most notable writers, Greg Isles. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Greg Isles is a Mississippian and a number one New York Times bestselling author. He often uses Mississippi as the locale for his plots, as is the case with Cemetery Road. Rooted in friendship, betrayal, and murderous secrets, we revisit a conversation with Isles about his thriller. You know, it's kind of a minefield writing about the town you actually live in. And people get misconceptions and they think every character is a real person. So to deal with something as personal as this book and the secret that's revealed in this book, I just didn't want any confusion. Since you set so many of your books in Natchez and why you just explained that it can create some problems, do the people in Natchez resent or like the fact that you often use Natchez as a setting? You know, a critic once said I do Natchez, the backhanded compliment of setting my books there. I think now and then I get some upset people, but look, in general, it's been good for the town, and I think people like the notoriety. And look, people in Natchez, they don't wear blinders. They know what it's really like. They know what Mississippi's really like. I think that's one thing you can say about Mississippi, the Mississippi warts and all. The bad things have pretty much always been out in public. How do you decide, or is it a conscious decision, when you include factual information in your books? I think, for me, it's always been a part of my art or craft to weave a dense historical context or matrix around the fiction that I use so that the the person reading the book really does feel that, that, it, that it's real, that it's history. And, you know, I've written a couple of historical novels. Maybe it comes out of that. You know, I don't want to go too far with this, but, I mean, you, when you write about the things I do, about the place you grew up, and you're writing about race and family and those things, I mean, to an extent it is real. And, uh, You you almost couldn't do it without using some real people, I think. Well, let's get to this book specifically. Cemetery Road is a thriller. Tell us about the lead character and some of the circumstances of the book. Yeah, the lead character is sort of a cross. I I didn't intend this, but he's sort of a cross between Woodward and Bernstein from the 70s, an investigative journalist and sort of a John Meacham-type character like we have now. He leaves Mississippi when he's 18 because of a terrible thing that happened in his family. He swears he'll never come back. But at the peak of his career in Washington, D.C., he finds out his father's dying, and he has to go back to help his mother. And he has to run the family newspaper until I think he thinks he'll he'll sell it as soon as his father dies. Two things happen when he comes back. One, he runs into as much corruption as he left in Washington, D.C., which anybody from Mississippi knows is true. And two, it reveals the fact that this book is really about two men in love with the same woman, and they've always been in love with the same woman. So when you wind up with both men and the woman in the same town, that's pretty much trouble is going to ensue. And plus, the two men are best friends. Best friends, and, and since childhood, absolutely. it's uh, And one saved the life of the other one. That's right. That's right. I mean, I, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but I knew when a guy is sleeping with his best friend's wife, and you find out that that friend saved his life, 
man, it, it's hard to believe readers are going to stick with your guy, even if he's a hero. <laughs> I'm thinking they're going to say, no, I'm not going with him. Mississippi always plays a main character. Is that your intention? Because it really is a character. Not only Mississippi, but the river itself. I think those of us who grew up in the river counties have a special feeling about that, just like people who grew up in Mississippi have it about the state. And everybody asks about Mississippi, why we have so many rioters, how, what is the North wrong about? You know, and if you live in Mississippi, black or white, despite our troubled history, I find that people uh, have a feeling about it that, that they wouldn't trade it for anything. Somebody just asked me why I live in Mississippi when I could live anywhere I want. And I said, well, I'm going to give you Morgan Freeman's answer. And I'm sure you know that story. They asked Morgan why he lived in Mississippi when he could live anywhere he wanted. And he thought for a minute and he said, because I can live anywhere I want to. Do you see your future as a writer being in that niche of thrillers? Do you think you'll always write thrillers? I don't know. This, I think, is my 16th book. And I've had some opportunities come up in television and different things. I'm looking at what it is I'm going to do. I certainly never intended to write Dan Cage novels all my life. And I broke away from that. And you know, I've written about a lot of subjects, but this last run of books, really, you're right, has been dead center in Mississippi, so I'm not sure. This book is called Cemetery Road, and Greg Isles is the author. Greg, thanks so much. Thank you, Karen. I really enjoyed it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.